Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, more money and more power for CISA. And I've seen agencies double in size, and, and it's not pretty. No money for anyone in seven days if Congress blows it. I don't want to confront the potential for government shutdown or reaching the debt ceiling. Both of those present real crises for the government that we don't need right now. And an innovation ecosystem grows at VA. When you recognize, either through awards, through just calling out good work, individuals drive towards the mission, it becomes infectious. It's Thursday, September 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Senate's version of this year's National Defense Authorization Act includes $286 million of new money for cybersecurity across the Defense Department. The top line in the Senate version of the bill adds $25 billion to President Biden's request. The Senate bill includes a 2.7% pay raise for military personnel. The top intelligence officer in the Air Force says her service needs to get more serious about defending artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms from adversaries. Lieutenant General Mary O'Brien, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, Reconnaissance, and Cyber Effects Operations, says no organization inside the Air Force defends those algorithms once they're operational. O'Brien told the Air Force Association Wednesday her service is looking for ways to use AI and ML more. The final solicitation for the General Services Administration's Polaris contract is coming, according to Assistant Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, Laura Stanton. She writes in a blog post, GSA will host an event for small and disadvantaged businesses next Wednesday. The agency is scheduling an industry forum for the vehicle October 20th. You can read more about those stories and many more at fedscoop.com. Cyber Week is coming the week of October 18th through the 22nd. CyberScoop's presenting it. It's a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events and top leaders from tech, education, government, digitally and in person. You can learn more and sign up now at cyberweek.us. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency could be in for more money and more power if funding and authorization bills in the House become law. And one member thinks doubling CIS's budget should be in its future. Ron Marks is president of ZPN Cyber and National Security Strategies. He's author of Spying in America in the Post-9-11 World, Domestic Threat and the Need for Change. Ron, welcome. It's great to see you again. All of this Thanks, money man. and all of this power going to CISA would seem to me to make it the place to be for people who care about cyber in the federal government. Am I reading this right, Ron? Welcome. Well, absolutely. No, thank you. And glad to be here. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you see that much money pouring in the direction of anybody, you can say at this point that people certainly feel comfortable. I, I think that, you know, it's not only been Chris Krebs, but it's also been Jenny Easterly, who have really gone out of their way to push uh, CISA forward uh, as sort of the node, the place to be, certainly domestically. Congress has certainly caught on to that. Uh, there's nothing Congress likes to do more than throw money at a program that they think is successful. Uh, I haven't seen the details on where the money is supposed to go to. That always frightens me in terms of being on the receiving side of it, which is, you know, what do you do with this? How does this match up against FBI, NSA, and others? But that essentially should be a job uh, for our uh, national cyber director. Uh, we'll see uh, whether or not he's able to insert himself in that process through that uh, 
OMB like role that he uh, that he seems to have. But no, you're quite right. I, I think that uh, you know they're talking about all kinds of things about making it a five year term uh, for the director of CISA. They're also you know talking about it uh, actually being the one stop shop where people come and report their problems. Uh, I suspect that FBI will have some ch- uh, cherry things to say about that. Uh, but still, it, uh, it's been a remarkable rise, a very quick rise. But I think people sense confidence. And when you're in a situation like this where you're dealing with, you know, virtually impossible situations uh, in ransomware and elsewhere, uh, anybody who's showing levels of confidence, and these guys have done a very good job of showing levels of confidence, are going to get money and power. My colleague Tim Starks writes on cyberscoop.com, the top GOP member of the House Homeland Security Committee, New York's John Katko, thinks CISA needs to have a budget closer to $5 billion to be the federal cybersecurity quarterback. Now, CISA's budget this year is about $2 billion. He also writes the Democratic-controlled House Appropriations Committee has approved $2.4 billion in CISA spending for fiscal 2022. In Washington, when something becomes a game of budget one-upsmanship, I think they should get more. And the other side says, no, I think they should get more. That's a really good sign for organizations and people that think that CISA should really be the the focal point of cyber, isn't it, Ron? Yeah, it certainly is an indication that people are viewing them as as competent. Uh, I was going to say in the land in the land of the of the one eyed, you know, anybody with two eyes is king. Uh, and this is a case where, frankly, CISA has shown that they have shown the ability to reach out. Uh, Lord only knows, uh, Jen Easterly is on her on her on the verge of becoming a social media influencer of one form or another. I think I see her uh, on uh, on just about everything except TikTok, and I'm probably missing that at this point. You're just not uh, looking. I'm just not looking. Well, I'm 65 year old man. What do you expect out of me? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, just too old for the game. Although I do have TikTok, by the way, I do look. Um, so I, I think you know, getting the message out. Uh, there are some sticky things to come, and you know, in terms of again, what are you going to use the money for? I, I always, you know, I've been around agencies certainly uh, during ramp up periods, and the question becomes, and again, I think this is where a national cyber director comes into play to be able to sit down you know, work out who gets what in terms of cyber world. Is that money the best place to put it, put, you know, in terms of CISA? But what in the world is CISA going to do with it? I mean, I've seen agencies double in size and, and it's not pretty. I mean, usually what happens is that you try to carry on your current programs and then the unfunded requirements that you've had stuffed away for years start to get yanked out. So the UFRs get yanked out. Uh, and then you're in a business of trying to, uh, trying to expand quickly with personnel. Uh, you know, again, we've had problems trying to find people who are really expert in cyber world. Um, you know, do they take over some of the responsibilities that belong to Treasury and the Bureau at this point? And, you know, what kind of coordinate? I mean, there's there's a myriad of coordination issues, which again, you know, won't be resolved by throwing, throwing money at it. I mean, I'll always take the money if I'm in that position. I'd be foolish not to. But again, I, I would advise strongly that... Uh, this is a moment where Chris Inglis needs to step in, uh, you know, clearly the Secretary of Homeland Security at this point, uh, you know, needs to think about what CISA's position is going to be within DHS. Um, you know, this has been an interesting expansion of, uh, of, of, you know, DHS's role in terms of Homeland Security. I mean, we've watched the accretion of Homeland Security over the years going from terrorism to with FEMA, obviously, and certainly after Katrina dealing with uh 
disaster issues locally and and the this whole cyber business has ramped up again very quickly uh had been a minor presence and is now going to represent you know what five billion dollars out of a 50 billion dollar entity uh if that is the case if that's where we're going in 23 24 or wherever um you know that's a that's a big chunk of change and you know what role are they going to play is being within an agency within dhs a good idea ron marks thanks very much for joining me it's great to talk to you again thank you francis delighted you can read more about the money and power that could be coming to CISA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, pushing innovation to the front lines at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Ryan Vega tells you how he's doing exactly that. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available in advance. You get a sneak peek on Twitter when you follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. That cash influx at CISA is just one example of agencies getting bigger budgets in short time frames. Some of the money is because of pandemic response, and some is because of expanding missions. Robert Shea is National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. The influx of money that would come into CISA under what we just talked about with Ron, that's a positive normally, but... There's a lot of potential, as Ron alluded to, that the execution can be messed up. How does one avoid that cash influx turning into big problems? Welcome. Yeah, Francis, good to be with you, my friend. This is not alone. Many, most federal agencies are looking down the barrel of an exponentially greater amount of spending than they're used to. That's been the case in select agencies like Small Business Administration, Treasury, HHS, as a result of the pandemic and economic recovery expenditures. But when you have regular appropriations, infrastructure and reconciliation, the numbers get into the multiple trillions. Agencies are gonna need to plan pretty quickly and carefully for the expenditures of those months. If they're going through existing programs, they've got an easier task ahead, but a lot of these monies are destined for new programs. So those programs have to be defined, staffed, Controls have to be in place to make sure that the money's not completely wasted and going to the wrong people. Uh, We've got to have a conversation with stakeholders. Many of these programs are going to be going to people who've never engaged with the federal government. So beginning those, opening those lines of communication so they know what it means to get a grant from or contract with the federal government um, or to get a benefit from the government. These are things that are going to be taking place across the federal government in almost every single federal agency. We're seeing 50 to 100% increases in some programs, and not all of it's related to the pandemic. This is one example. There's cybersecurity uh, programs in various agencies that are plussing up to that degree. How does one deal with that cash influx? What are the steps that one takes, or does that depend on what the program is and what it's for and the amount of money or other variables? It'll depend. And some agencies have a greater capacity to take on that kind of spending increase. Department of Defense is uh, one that comes to mind. But others, OMB will need to apportion monies that are appropriated. Agencies will need to select what leadership over new programs will need to be in place before that money is distributed. Again, existing programs, not nearly as big a deal, nonetheless, people are going to expect the money flow to begin pretty quickly. There's also variability in the the time for which the money is appropriated. 
Some of these programs are annual appropriations. Others, like especially in the infrastructure realm, are longer term. You're looking at five, 10-year expenditures. And in those cases, when you're talking about large infrastructure projects, the contracting process is incredibly laborious and complicated. One of the factors people are going to have to think about is who's going to do all this stuff. There's an enormous gap in the workforce across all industries, almost. And so even though we expect this money to have an immediate impact, large construction firms are going to have to find the people to actually work on the infrastructure projects that are funded. And that's true of every type of program out there. There's just a tremendous shortage of workers facing almost every facet of the economy. To the point of who's going to do all this stuff also, this conversation's happening at a point in time where in a week and a half, nobody might be doing any of this stuff, at least for a period of time, if we don't have at least a continuing resolution ready to go. What's the implication for that when one is trying to figure out how to develop an execution strategy here? Wait, what did you say? I think you're breaking up, Francis. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to confront the potential for a government shutdown or reaching the debt ceiling. Both of those present real crises for the government that we don't need right now. The Congress always flails around at the end of the fiscal year. This year's no exception. It looks awfully menacing. I'm somewhat confident, less and less confident, but somewhat confident that we'll reach a deal on a continuing resolution that funds the government at least through December so we can get the rest the, the, the government's appropriations bills enacted. The big question is how the Congress gets the debt ceiling lifted and you know whether or not that can be done in time through reconciliation remains to be seen, but it'll have to get done some way. All right, what will you watch in the next week or so for markers as to what direction the, uh, the continuing resolution's headed, Robert? Yeah, I'm interested to see what the Senate does with the House-passed continuing resolution. The Senate ought to quickly adopt a clean version that doesn't include the debt ceiling increases and send it back to the House. If that doesn't happen, then I may go into the fetal position. And then, of course, what happens with the debt ceiling? Do they include that in reconciliation? So if I hear coming from the direction of Alexandria, la, 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 I'll know that you're in the fetal position and things have gone horribly wrong. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there'll be empty whiskey bottles littered around the floor as well, probably. All right. Robert Shave, Grant Thornton, thanks very much, my friend. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can read more about the budget debate in Congress in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available now on all the podcast platforms. Wherever you get your shows, you can find it. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thank you for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. A 3D printed hearing device is one of the latest examples of innovation at the Veterans Health Administration. The VHA is prepping for the last phase of this year's Innovation Experience Series. Dr. Ryan Vega is Chief Officer in the Office of Healthcare Innovation and Learning at the VHA. Ryan, welcome. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you doing more generally to foster a culture of innovation across the VHA? as much as the specific pieces of technology and innovation themselves. Welcome. Hey, Francis, great to be with you. It's really important to make sure, especially uh, over the past 18 months, that we are investing in our staff, in our people. 
And it's beyond just the technology or the technological capabilities. Those exist. It's how we create spaces and opportunities for our clinicians, for our frontline providers, for our frontline staff to use those technologies, to use those solutions to help not only improve the lives of the individuals they're served, and in this case, veterans, but in some instances to make their work easier, more efficient, more effective, and in doing so, helping them provide a better overall experience. There's a number of ways that we do this. I think you have to be purposeful. You have to really embrace the idea that from an innovation lens, failure is something to celebrate, not necessarily to punish. Uh, you have to carve out some protected time to reward and incentivize uh, the notion that people are taking liberties to come up with better or new solutions to do the work. And you have to invest. Uh, that's the other piece of this. There is a financial investment that has to be made. Uh, it can be small monetary investments into individuals' ideas, a couple hundred dollars to see if uh, the back of a napkin prototype can actually work. Uh, but those three things have to really align. And I, I always say this, but there's, there's two things that can really kill any innovation, particularly in healthcare. When you don't have the alignment of financial incentives or you don't have a workflow, meaning it's not easy for the patient or the clinician or the, the staff to actually use the solution. Those things will stall or kill any great innovation. So I think it's about purposefully investing both financially and a time commitment. And it's enabling them a safe space to really test these solutions out. How did you establish the financial incentive piece in a traditional legacy government organization like VHA, where you're thinking about budgets, three different budgets at one time, and having a cash pot like that is not really something that Congress is always comfortable with. We get this question a lot. We established a program called Sparkseed Spread. It actually dates back to 2015. A White House Innovation Fellow came up with the idea, and it has grown and has now since expanded. And I'll talk a little bit about the evolution into what's called the Greenhouse Initiative now. But Sparkseed Spread is a yearly program in which we allocate non-traditional grants to VA employees through a competition. The spark are ideas. Uh, employees can receive a couple hundred dollars up to a thousand. The seed, it's a little bit more seed funding. And then the spread are obviously practices that are much more established that are spreading. Traditionally, we will make investments up to about a million dollars in a hundred different practices across the enterprise. And what we've been tracking are two really important metrics. One, it's not just about the practices, but how many people are going through this experience, this accelerator? How many individuals are we saying, you have a good idea on the front line, we're actually going to put our money where our mouth is and invest in you and your project? That's well over 800 investees. And then we look at the success rate like you would any fund. What percentage of Spark projects mature into seed, seed into spread, and then which percentage of those projects are actually scaling across the country? Uh, and the exciting thing about looking at the performance of the fund is it's actually akin or alike to most successful funds. It's about 10 to 15 percent of our investments mature year over year. Uh, and we're seeing a number of practices now that have grown out of the Spark seed spread. Vet Techs is one of them. I'm sure you've heard multiple people talk about VA te uh, technology to get text message, appointment, rescheduling, COVID vaccine. All of this came through Sparkseed Spread Investments. Um, so a lot of these practices that are now being used enterprise-wide came from that investment that we made. So it's 
it's good to see that the investments are paying off. Interestingly, what's happened too is that's evolved into what's called the Greenhouse Initiative. The Greenhouse Initiative allows early stage startups to come in and pitch their ideas to VA medical centers. We then co-develop and partner with those startups. There may be some sharing um, in the patent. Perhaps it's a co-developed patent. There may be some ability to get these solutions and help shape the product themselves so that they're more applicable to the veteran population. And sometimes it's just about getting these solutions into the hands of veterans to impact them in a much more timely manner than ever could. We're up to 180 applications from these early startups. We've seen a number of early successes. So we've had to get creative to your point about how do you financially incentivize both internal and external. Uh, and, and that's been sort of a year over year over year evolution. But it's, it's amazing to see how the team has really been thoughtfully minded about building these pieces together in a government agency and, and the success is there. Of your three kind of pillars that you laid out at the beginning of this conversation, Ryan, the second one was incentivize, investing number three, and I went right to the money as I tend to do. The first one was purposeful. How do you drive that at the rank and file level across VHA? It's challenging. And I was recently on clinical service. I still go back uh, on the wards, so to speak, to see patients, teach medical students and residents. And it's, uh, it's, it's humbling, as I joke, uh, but it's also a stark reminder of, of regardless of whether you're in VA or, or a commercial hospital, it's hard to provide high quality care. There is a lot going on. Uh, the patients are sick. Uh, there's a lot of administrative tasks that need to be done. Uh, if you're teaching, then you're trying to protect time to teach as well. So you, you sort of say, how do you actually have time to do this? One of the things that we've really centered on, and we're lucky, and maybe I'm biased in suggesting that our mission is the most noblest of all healthcare missions. But when you think about the mission of the VA, it's to care for. It's not to provide health care. It's to care for. What we have seen is that by driving towards a mission outcome to provide care, which means it's not acceptable just to treat the diabetic with insulin. It's how do we prevent the veteran from having or developing diabetes. That inculcating that idea that we must move beyond healthcare and actually care that produces health outcomes. People have gravitated towards the mission. And when you recognize either through awards, through just calling out good work, individuals drive towards the mission, it becomes infectious. Uh, when you're part of something that feels much larger than yourself, we see this in any organization. We see this most commonly in sports, in high-performing teams, that they feel part and feel connected to something larger than themselves uh, and they can rise up through adversity and develop a tremendous amount of resiliency. So I think you have to focus on the mission, which means then you're purposeful about how you approach, and particularly in this case, innovation. Dr. Ryan Vega of the Veterans Health Administration, grateful for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us, Francis. You can read more about innovation at VA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and lots more places. 
Friday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts at 4 p.m. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.